Well, good morning. Morning, morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. I hope that you have been encouraged by the Lord this morning as we have gathered. As you know, our worship is similar every week, week to week to week. We come together, we fellowship, we sing together, we read scripture, we pray, and then we preach the word. We uh, do the same thing every week. We just do, the, just do the same things. You might be asking, though, why we do these things. Well, the short answer is that these, if you would call them elements of worship, are given to us in the New Testament. As we start this morning, we're going to get into our study in Matthew, but I want us to take a moment to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, verse 42, speaking of the early church, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now I want you to take notice, I want you to notice that there are four elements of worship that Luke gives us in Acts 2.42. He says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves more specifically to the Word of God. They also devoted themselves to fellowship, fellowship with the saints. In other words, they spent time together as the body of Christ. They also spent time, they also were spending time breaking bread together. Now, specifically here, I think that this is, Luke's reference here is to the Lord's table, communion. And they also, we think we can also say this, they ate meals together. They, they just enjoyed fellowship around eating a meal. And they also were devoted, devoted themselves to prayer. They prayed together. They, they, I think this involved corporate and individual prayer. Now, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, if you want to turn there, gives us a little further insight into the nature of these early gatherings. I want you to see what Luke records about the gathering of the church. He says this in Acts 20, verse 7. <clears throat> On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, I would say this is descriptive, not prescriptive necessarily, because I don't think you would want me to preach until midnight. Uh, but... At the same time, we see a prescriptive nature of, of this verse. They, they gathered on the first day of the week. I mean, so we gather on the first day of the week. We gather on Sunday. That's why we believe the Scripture to teach that we gather on Sunday. Now, I don't think that we are, they were limited to gathering on Sunday, but I believe that that was their regular meeting time. That's when they regularly came together as the body of Christ. That doesn't mean they didn't have other times of meeting. You also may notice that they gathered to break bread. Same thing we saw in Acts 2.42. Then you may notice that they devoted themselves to listen to a message by the Apostle Paul. In other words, he taught them from the Word of God. Now, I've been thinking a lot about these things. And you may hear people say, we, we want to do church like the New Testament church, like they did in Acts. Well, the truth is, that's a, a nice thought. But truth is we can't fully replicate what they did, what the early church did. We can't fully replicate the early, how the early church did church, if you will. 
Now, we have to recognize we live in a different time and a different culture. The rhythms of our lives are different. For instance, they lived in in an agrarian society while we live in an industrial society. Truly, we, I believe that we're moving toward a post-industrial society here in the West, and that's going to change the way we do things even more, or even may change the, things that way, the way we do church, if you will. This continues, to, this continues to change, right? It continues to morph because culture changes. Yet the Lord gives us certain patterns for how we are to worship Him. These patterns teach us how to live obediently to Him. Therefore, we need to observe God's pattern for the church as seen in the early church. You see, Luke gives us those patterns and acts. He says the early church, and we saw this already, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They observed the Lord's table, and, and they had meals together. They devoted themselves to prayer, and they regularly gathered on the first day of the week. Those are the things that he says that they do, did, right? Now, having said that, we as humans have a sinful tendency to make more or less, more or less of the patterns God gives us than we should. You see, some churches believe in strictly following a certain worship liturgy. Every action is choreographed and strictly followed. Other churches, on the other hand, avoid adherence to a strict liturgy. They just want to, quote-unquote, keep it real. You heard that? They want to to capture or recapture the heart of the early church. They seek to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, I would argue that these are two potential ditches to be avoided. You know, you have the road and you have your ditch. You don't want to get off on either side. At one extreme, people come to believe that adherence to a certain liturgy makes us right with God. Just think of the the Catholic Church. I mean, they, they go and they do the same thing. And they have their liturgy they go through, and that's, they show up at the appointed time, and, and they go through the appointed liturgical motions to f- fulfill their obligation to God and the church. And for the most part, not, not always, but for the most part, very little thought is given to the meaning of each element of worship. And worse, and worse than that, many times they have little to no bearing on their Christian walk, these elements of worship. It's, really, it's the sacred versus the secular, right? You know, this reminds me of Hosea 6.6, where God says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, at the other extreme, worship is supposedly spirit-led and spirit-filled, right? There's, there's very little structure for the people to understand the nature of true worship. Therefore, the gathering can slip into a free-for-all with very little guidance from Scripture, very little structure. In that case, there is little to no discernment for what God truly wants. There's no model for living a a worshipful life which should include all of the elements of the early church. We saw those in Acts 2 and Acts 20. Now, I've thought a lot about this in my Christian walk, especially in my time as a pastor, and I hope you'll stick with me here. I firmly believe that God wants us to have structure in the church. He wants us to have structure to our gatherings. Yet, he wants us to understand there's a reality behind the structure. Let me explain what I mean. Here at Grace Bible Church, we regularly gather on the first day of the week, just like the early church. You see, this structured approach demonstrates the need to regularly worship the Lord as a part of our everyday lives. 
Our calendars should reflect a dependence upon the Lord. We can't show up on Sunday and believe that that checks the box on worship until the next week. It doesn't work that way. You see, our our daily walk must be characterized by worship, and the gathering then becomes the climax to our week. It's It's the climax to our week that we come together as Christians and we worship together. The weekly gathering models for us what it means to worship our Lord with the entirety of our lives. We also at Grace Bible Church, we spend time during the gathering to, to hear the Lord, the, the, to hear God's word, the apostles' teaching. We just sang about it earlier. Show us Christ. Well, we, we open up the, the word of God and, and we teach the word of God. We, we read the word of God and then we explain the word of God so that God's people can understand. This should set a really should set a pattern for our daily personal Bible reading and study. It shouldn't just be come to see the professional uh, stand up here and preach to you and teach you, and then you go and you never open the Bible for yourself. I mean, that's not the way it should work. This should be, this should be a model for how to do it. Right? I, should, I should be able to preach and teach to you and show you how I came to these conclusions so that now you can go and do the same. I'll I'll say this, even the best church with the most dynamic of preachers and teachers cannot be your only sustenance. Cannot be it. It can't be the end-all, be-all. The church's preaching and teaching should fuel your own time of reading and studying God's Word. Here at Grace Bible Church, we try to provide food and and refreshment as you come here, and and we have church lunch on a a monthly basis. This demonstrates our need to to regularly gather with other Christians for the purpose of of having fellowship and and sharing a meal. And as critical as these things are, we shouldn't see these things, these these regular things that we we schedule, we shouldn't see them as fully fulfilling our need for fellowship. It should be a pattern for us. It should be a pattern that we would, would gather together as Christians, and that we would come into each other's homes, and we would enjoy one another, and we would enjoy a meal together. Even yesterday, we helped the, the Kemp's move into their new apartment, and, and we had, we had a, there was an enjoyment of spending time together, of, of loving on one another, and, and serving one another. That's how it should be as Christians. These official gatherings that we have only help us recognize that we ought to regularly share our lives. And it's not, a, it's not incumbent upon the church leadership to, to, uh, to have exactly the, the gatherings that you want. <coughs> Christians should look to gather together. As Christians, we should look, be looking for other ways to have fellowship with one another. Official, official, quote-unquote, official gatherings and functions will not fulfill your need for Christian community. But they should facilitate opportunities for fellowship and drive your desire for more of it. <clears throat> Every week we pray corporately here at Grace Bible Church. I get up and I pray, the other men pray. We have, and we have special times of prayer where members, we, we gather every month, we gather to pray together. These, these prayer times demonstrate the need for prayer in the Christian life. Corporate prayer gives us the opportunity to see God answer our prayers. But again, your prayer time shouldn't be limited to the, the gathering on Sunday morning. 
Regular, regular corporate prayer demonstrates the need for private prayer on a daily basis. Dare I say, on a continual basis. It points to the reality that the church and that each individual is dependent upon our Lord. <coughs> That's why we call it dependent prayer. Here at Grace Bible Church, every month we observe the Lord's table. And in doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This, is a pa- this should set a pattern of, of thankfulness for all that Christ has accomplished in redeeming us. It also reminds us as Christians to live with an expectant hope for our Lord's return. It shows us our need for continual confession of sin and need to restore broken relationships with other believers. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. We also baptize new believers as a reminder of the reality of salvation in Christ. When we, bat- when we witness a baptism and a, and a testimony, it, it reminds us of what God does in saving us. It, al- it also spurs us on. It should spur us on to evangelize the lost so that we can be encouraged by the ama- amazing nature of God's mercy and grace upon the sinner. That's why we, that's why we take the time to fill the tub up and, and actually go up there and, and, and dunk people. So that when we do, they proclaim the Lord's death, or they, they are proclaiming what Christ has done in their hearts, and, and we can be encouraged by seeing it. So that we, can, we might go out and, and, and share the gospel more, so that we can see more of these things happen. The miracle of salvation. You see, all of these elements of worship help us understand the reality of the Christian life. They all point us to a greater understanding of life in Christ. They demonstrate to us what it means to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Church attendance and service are absolutely necessary to walk in 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 a worthy manner, but in and of themselves they're not designed to be the fullness of life in Christ. Now that may sound shocking to you, but they're not. You will be sorely disappointed if you believe that our official gatherings, the official gatherings of the church, should fulfill your every desire in life, for life in Christ, it, it won't do it. You know what I mean? You can't just show up on Sunday. You can't just pray on Sunday. You can't just spend time in the Word on Sunday. It doesn't work that way. It points to a greater need for Christ. A healthy church say it a different way, the healthy, a healthy church will continually point to your need for Christ and His Word, for, for fellowship with saints, the saints. It'll point to your need to confess and forsake sin. It'll point to your need to have an expectant hope in Christ, and it will point to your need to, to have dependent prayer or, have depend, or pray dependently to the Lord for every aspect of your life. And I'll tell you something else. No church will ever perfectly fulfill those needs. No church will, because we all fall short. Every church, I don't care, this 39th Avenue is filled with church, churches. If you decided to start on one end of 39th Avenue every Sunday until you get to the end, you would find fault with every one of the churches. It's, it's just the truth, including this church. But a healthy church that endeavors to function according to God's will, will admonish you in the truth. And, and 
and it will teach you with all wisdom so that it may present, to you, to present you complete in Christ. That's Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Friend, that's the type of church you need to join. That's the type of church you need to find. And I pray that you have found that type of church here at Grace Bible Church. That's the type of church we strive to be. A, a church who loves the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, who proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ. A church that admonishes every man and teaches every man with all wisdom so that we may present them complete in Christ. And by the way, he's speaking of every person there. But I hope you found that type of church in, in here at Grace Bible Church. Now today, as we return to our study in Matthew, we will be, we're going to be introduced to a group of highly religious folks who had carved out some very, a very comfortable life for themselves. You see, they had their religious observances, but they didn't know God, the God they claimed to serve. You see, they loved to be known for their relationship with God, but their heart was far from Him. So let us pray and dive back into our text in Matthew chapter 2. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You this morning. May our worship of You here corporately Lord, be a reflection of the worship of our lives. May we live our lives oriented towards you as your people. Father, I pray that you would bless this time this morning of preaching your word in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read, starting in Matthew 2, verse 1. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the, the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, for when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now after hearing the king... They went their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east was going on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. Now, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know that we're taking time to fully consider Matthew chapter 2. We're looking 
afresh at the account of the wise men, or the Magi's arrival in Jerusalem during the reign of Herod, Herod the Great. They came to Jerusalem searching for the long-awaited Messiah and King. But in this unique account of the Gentile Magi who traveled from the east, Matthew gives us four typical responses to King Jesus. Now, as we continue to study this account, I ask you to continue to ask yourself, how are you responding? Are you responding like the unwelcome and worshipful Magi? Are you responding like the unhappy and wicked King Herod? Or are you responding like the unworthy and worthless religious leaders? We'll see them today. We'll get introduced very well to them. And, or, or, or are you responding like the uncompromising and withstanding parents of Jesus? Now, let's quickly review the first typical response that we, we, have, we saw a couple of weeks ago. Are you responding like the unwelcome and worshipful magi? Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've looked closely at Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Matthew tells us that this event happened after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. At that time, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Most likely, they came to town when Jesus was but a few months old, but he could have been up to two years old. Now, we've spent time studying the origin of the magi. We found that they were a group of, a group of people from the east and they, who, probably, who were probably taught about the Messiah by Daniel. Look down at Matthew 2, 2. They began to ask, very specifically, where is he who has, been born, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Apparently, they had been expecting King Jesus, the king of the Jews, the true king of the Jews, for several centuries. And when they saw his star in the east, they came to worship him. Most likely, they had heard from Daniel uh, Balaam's prophecy out of the Pentateuch, out of the Torah, in Numbers twenty-four seventeen, where Balaam actually says, A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall arise from Israel, and shall crush through the, head of, the, the forehead of Moab. Now we saw that Balaam's prophecy, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, that Balaam's prophecy connects to Jacob's prophecy in, in Genesis 49.10, where Jacob says that a scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his feet until Shiloh comes. Now again, that is a messianic prophecy. And to him shall be the, the obedience of the people. So that even connects back to God's promise in Genesis 3.15 to send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, as Daniel rose up in the political structure of the day of, uh, of the day during the Babylonian captivity, he became a respected teacher and leader among the Magi. He taught them the Messianic prophecies, the ones that we just talked about. He taught those prophecies uh, to the to Magi. Now, after that time, evidently, they had looked expectantly. There must have been a group of them that had looked expectantly for the Messiah. And when they saw the glory of Jesus blazing as an extremely bright star, they came to seek him. They came to find him, and they came to worship him. And in Matthew 2.10, we see that they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the star. When they understood that they were going to see uh, the, the uh, Messiah, they, they had a rejoicing in their hearts. 
And the text tells us in Matthew 2.11 that when they saw Jesus, the child, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now the church, the, the Magi's response should be humbling to us. You see, they were unwelcome visitors, outsiders to Israel, yet they were looking for the true king, the king of the Jews, and when they found him, they didn't hesitate to worship him. The question is, does this describe your heart, your heart? Are you an unlikely worshiper of King Jesus like the Magi? I can promise you that if you are a true worshiper of him, you are, in fact, an unlikely worshiper of Christ Jesus. Let's review the second response. Are you responding like the unhappy, unhinged, and very wicked King Herod? Look back at your text in 2.1 where Matthew introduces us to another character in this great drama, King Herod. He says that this all occurred in the days of Herod the king. We learned that earlier last week, we learned that King Herod was put into power by the Romans, and he became known as Herod the Great mainly because of his incredible building projects. He was a skilled politician who led the nation to prosperity and, and to relative peace. He was able to use the Romans, skillfully use the Romans, to maintain his own power. Yet Herod was an extremely paranoid uh, man. He, he was extremely paranoid about anyone who might usurp him. Truly, Herod, you could say this very clearly from Herod's history, he was a paranoid murderer who wouldn't let anyone stand in his way, including the Jewish Messiah, the true king of the Jews. So when the Magi come, came, he was, he was troubled. And when Herod became troubled, let me just say this, Herod became even more dangerous. And that's what we see here. And, and, and here's the truth. You can bet all, all Jerusalem knew it. They knew how much trouble this would be because when Herod was threatened, he was not going to let it lie. Therefore, Matthew tells us that all Jerusalem was troubled as well. You see, the whole city was on edge when, when these men, these magi, came into town. So according to Matthew 2, 7, and 8, Herod secretly met with the Magi. I mean, he's cunning. This man's cunning. He secretly met, met with the Magi to determine the time the star had appeared. He did this so that he, that, that he would know the, Jesus' approximate age as, a, as this sinister backup plan. Then he sent the Magi to, to find the child for him. He told them he wanted, he lied to them. He, he bold-faced lied to him. He told them that he wanted to worship the child as well. But all the time, the whole time, he had this sinister uh, plan that he was hatching. And in 2.9, the Magi left King Herod, and the star led them to Jesus. Then, skipping down to Matthew 2.16, we see the full wickedness of King Herod on display when he had all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under to be, he, he had them slaughtered. You see, clearly, King Herod had rejected the true king. He had placed himself upon the throne, and there was no room for anyone else, especially Jesus, the true king. Now, you may not be outwardly wicked like King Herod, but you can, in fact, commit the same wicked sin of rejecting Jesus, the true king. Let's look at the third possible response. Are you responding like the unworthy and worthless Jewish leadership? 
as we progress in our study in Matthew's gospel, we're going to encounter various groups that make up the Jewish religious leadership. So I want you to look down in your text in Matthew 2.4. Here the text says that King Herod gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he began questioning them as to where the, the Messiah was to be born. Now we need to take a, a, some time. We need to take some time to get to know the different religious groups within Jewish society. First, Matthew mentions the chief priests. Now, <clears throat> all Jewish priests came from the priestly tribe of Levi. They were descendants of the first high priest, Aaron. Now, I think it would be appropriate to think of them as the Magi of Israel, and I think you're going to understand why I would say that in a moment. Uh, they, if, we, if we see them as the, the Magi, then we're going, to see, we're going to see them juxtaposed to the response of the, the Magi. Now, they were not rulers. They didn't rule in a political sense, but they had considerable power. They had great influence on the people, both politically and religiously. And in their position, and this is important to understand, they should have been the first to recognize the arrival of the true king. Truly causing the star to appear to the Magi, I would say, I would argue, was God's judgment on the Jewish leadership. It stands to reason that they should have been the first to know that the king had arrived, does it not? The high priest then uh, was the first among the chief priests. According to Old Testament law, there was to be but one high priest at a time. He served as the high priest for life. His chief duty was to enter the Holy of Holies once a year, once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifice for all the people. But over time the office had become corrupted. Uh, they had, it was subjected to political favoritism. The, the office of the, of the chief priest could even be purchased for the right price. The, and so rulers came to be able to appoint and remove them at their pleasure. As a consequence, uh, several chief priests could be living at the same time because they just got plugged in and pulled out and and, and so that's how that worked. And after they were removed from office, they lost their function as high priest, yet they often kept the title. We need to understand that. So uh, along with that title, they still possessed much influence and status among the people. So during that time, the current, the, the current ruling high priest also ruled over what's called the Sanhedrin. This, this was a ruling, the ruling body within the religious, establish, religious establishment. The Sanhedrin was comprised of 70 of the highest-ranking Jewish leader, religious leaders. The position of the captain of the temple was filled by one of the chief priests. So you had the high priest, and then you had you know, these, these different chief priests, and, they, and so the captain of the temple was filled by one of those chief priests who answered then to the high priest who, was also, who also appointed him to that position. Now, the Romans actually allowed the captain of the temple to arrest and imprison those who broke the law. The, he possessed a relatively large group of soldiers who were Jewish, and they acted as the temple police at his direction. He was, again, second in authority to the high priest. Now, there were other leading priests who had various duties. They included the temple treasurer and other temple officials. These leaders formed what was, what was the, the priestly class, that is, that was known as the chief priest. And that's what Matthew was referring to, this, this uh, priestly 
class that was known as the chief priest. Now, most of these were Sadducees, while the normal priests were Pharisees, mostly Pharisees. By the time of Jesus' birth, they had morphed into a corrupt class of religious politicians bent on keeping the status quo. Therefore, therefore, we can say very clearly they were in direct opposition to God's work. They had zero interest at this point in the Messiah's arrival. Again, it is fascinating to consider their response to Jesus' arrival compared to the Magi. While the high priests were primarily Sadducees, the scribes, we, he, said, he mentions the scribes, were mostly Pharisees. They were authorities on Jewish law, both scriptural and traditional. Therefore, they were referred to as the lawyers. Now, the Jews considered them to be the key scholars within the religious power structure. The Pharisees were theologically conservative for the most part, and they held a more literalistic view of Scripture. And as such, they could be very legalistic in their approach to religious matters. They held a strict interpretation of ceremonial and moral law. There were Sadducees among the scribes as well. They generally held to a liberal interpretation of Scripture. They they shunned the miraculous, such as the resurrection and angels. We see that in, in Acts 23.8. The, the scribes had no interest in the true king. They had no interest in him. And were united in their opposition to Jesus throughout, their, throughout his ministry. Now look back at 2.4. Look back at 2.4. And gathering... Together, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod gathered these, these religious leaders with their various political and theological roles. Then he began to inquire of them uh, where the Messiah was to be born. The Greek word translated inquire is, is in, in the Greek imperfect. This means that, that Herod was persistent in his questioning of the religious leaders. They were able to tell Herod, they, they, they were able to tell Herod they, the prophesied birthplace of the Messiah, but the fact, of, the fact is the city of the Messiah's birth was pretty well known among the people. In John 7, the Apostle John records a dispute among the people about Jesus' or, origin. It, it, John recorded them as saying in John 7:42, he says, "Has not Scripture said the Christ comes from the descendant of Dave, descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Of course, this is correct. And the religious leaders knew the right answer. They knew that according to Micah 5.2, that one will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel, and he would come from Bethlehem. He would come from Bethlehem. They had the right information. And they were able to provide Herod the correct scripture reference. Look at your text where they quote Micah 5.2. And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what is written by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. And this quote is a straightforward rendering of Micah 5.2. In that quote, Micah prophesies that the Messiah would in fact come from Bethlehem, the birthplace of David. But here's the rub. They knew the correct information. 
they had the right Bible reference. If chapters and, and verses would have existed, they would have had the book, chapter, and verse. You ever heard of that one, book, chapter, and verse? They would have had it. Yet they were not in the least interested in the Magi's search. Either they didn't believe the Magi's report of the star given as a sign of the birth, or they just didn't care. In the words of one commentator, Israel knew precisely where the king of the Jews would be born. But it was the Gentiles who worshipped worshiped him first. Just think about that scenario for a moment. In this story, we see Gentile magi. We saw it. We looked at it in depth. We, we see Gentile magi waiting for several centuries for the arrival of the king of the Jews, the Messiah. Yet, and when they see the sign of his arrival, the star arising from the land of Judah, they come in haste. They made that perilous journey uh, to worship him. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they find out that the king is to be born in Bethlehem. So they saddle up and they ride five more miles to find him. As they're going going there, the star reappeared to them and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And when they walk into the house where he was staying, they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Now let's think about this from the perspective of the Jewish religious leaders. These are the ones that are supposed to be the it. The it, right? They had in their possession, they had Abraham and the patriarchs. They had Moses and the law. They had the prophets. They, they had the promises and, and the covenants. Yet, when the Magi showed up asking about the star and the Messiah, they didn't even care enough to get up and go five miles down the road to search for him. Think about it. Even if they didn't believe the Magi, you would think that the remote possibility that the Messiah had arrived would have been important enough for them to take a day or two out of their busy schedules to go check it out. Yet, Matthew doesn't tell us any of that. He gives us no indication they did any such thing. In the words of another commentator, he says... All this time the religious leaders of Jerusalem know from their own scriptures where the Messiah is to be born. But not even the visit from the foreign dignitaries piques their curiosity enough to travel six miles to Bethlehem to find out if there is any, any truth in the report, end quote. Here's the, here's the problem. By this point in Israel's history, the religious leaders had become so corrupted that they rejected their Messiah from the very beginning of his life. They didn't want any part of it. The Apostle John captures this hard truth with this simple statement in John 1.11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's the stark truth. Now, church, church, much ink has been spilled about Israel's future. future. At, at this point, I don't intend to delve into that subject. I only want to focus on the pathetic nature of the religious leader's response. The fact that they rejected Jesus. He came to them and they refused him from the very beginning.
They rejected them because of their apathy. Their complete indifference towards serving the one true God. Just as an aside, it should teach us something, shouldn't it? Teach us something. But we should join our Lord in expressing great sorrow over their rejection. Just before going to the cross in Luke 19, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The Apostle Paul responded in much the same way in Romans 9. Just listen to his heart, starting in Romans 9.1. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wished... For I could wish that I I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They have the same heart. Let me give a word of warning in that same section. A word of caution from the Apostle Paul. In Romans 11, just a little while later, he warns the Gentile church in Rome not to boast against God's people Israel. He calls them the branches. The branches were cut off for their unbelief and we were grafted in. But just listen to his warning in Romans 11.20. He says, They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. In verse 22, this is Romans 11.22. Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. Then he qualifies it. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. You will also be cut off. Beloved, I've, as we have progressed through Matthew's account in Matthew 2, I've asked, how have you responded to King Jesus? Have you responded like the unwelcome and worshipful magi? Do you live expecting His second coming? Do you live a life of joy in the hope of a glorious future dwelling with Him forever? Beloved, the magi were outsiders. They were unwelcome, yet they joyfully received the King. Is that you? I sincerely hope so. Or have you responded like the unhappy, unhinged, and incredibly wicked King Herod? In your mind, do you sit on your very own throne and reject any other potential rulers of your life? In your wickedness, have you rejected your true sovereign? Now we have a third response to consider. Have you responded like the unworthy, worthless Jewish religious leaders? Are you smug in your 
belief that you deserve salvation. You know, you, re- you attend the right church. You believe the right things. After all, you were obviously better than everyone else. Why wouldn't God show you great favor? You go to the right church, you have a pristine understanding of systematic theology, you have a John Calvin banner in your bedroom. I thought thought y'all would laugh about that. Maybe you give more than most to your church. Maybe you give more to a local charity. Maybe you do give most to both. Maybe you long to show off your bank statement. Maybe you even refrain from worldly things. I know I'm going to step on some toes here. But you'd never watch Disney or buy stuff from Amazon. You would never be seen with certain people and associate with certain things. Because you got it together. Not like those, not like those Pharisees, or the, the, not the Pharisees, but the tax collectors. That's your attitude. Let me step on some more toes. Maybe you voted Trump and think that God saves every red-blooded American. You fly your Trump banner proudly and you love NASCAR interviews on NBC. Y'all know what I'm talking about. After all, heaven is your God-given right as an American, right? You believe it's God, family, and America. Or America. Or maybe, let me step on some more toes. Maybe you would never vote for someone like Trump. You voted for some unknown third-party candidate because values. Because you are better than that. You're not willing to vote for someone who hates women, right? You're not willing to vote for someone who stirs up strife. You thank God every day you're not like that ungodly Trump voter. Beloved, here's the truth. None of these things will give you favor with God. None of them will. Let me say it this way. Your religiosity nor your politics will ever get you into heaven. Here's the unvarnished truth. King Herod and the religious leaders of Israel were exactly the same at the end of the day. Exactly the same. Both rejected the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Herod usurped the authority of the true king. He rejected the rightful ruler, King Jesus, the Religious leaders rejected their Messiah, preferring a life of ease and comfort. They believed their false piety and their ungodly politics would somehow, they believed it would somehow grant them favor with God. Friend, I ask, I ask you, what is your response to King Jesus? Are you like Herod and the Jewish leaders? If, if so, let me just say this to you. God is calling you to fall on the ground and worship Him like the Magi. I remind you, we read this last week, Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
I beg you. I beg you today. I beg you. Bow your knee to Him today. Turn from your sins and and to serve the one true God. Forsake all else. Nothing else matters. I beg you, turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, so that you may receive forgiveness of your sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in King Jesus. For most of you today, I'm persuaded that you've already bowed your knees to to Christ. If you have, I pray you would continue to deny yourself. That you would take up your cross. And that you would follow Christ. That He's promised that whoever loses his life for his sake will find life eternal. It bears... Finish that out. He goes on to say in that same section, Matthew 16, 25, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Then he asks this question. Well, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, absolutely no profit. Absolutely no profit. I pray that that's not you today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. As we've considered this accounts of the Magi. Lord, I pray that and I ask that we would truly consider the responses here. The response of the Magi in worshiping. The response of King Herod in rejecting. The response of the religious leaders in their apathy and indifference and ultimate rejection. Father, I pray that we as Christians would take up our cross and follow you. That we would serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we would love you. And in doing so, we would love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.